You are listening to The Exchange. Welcome everybody. I'm your host, Dr. Lorraine. I wanted to introduce my guest, Sister Gil Larson, who is joining me and her and I have known each other for several, several years. Actually, it's been more than um, a decade, almost going on, oh goodness, almost, whoa, 17 years. I don't know how long that's been. It's been quite a while, but her and I are going to be talking today about caring for those who are dealing with grief. And um, this is a subject that I know is needed and I am going to be so happy for all of you guys to hear this. And Sister Gil Larson, thank you so much for being my guest today. It is always an honor to see you and I don't get to see you very often, but when I do, it is just brings back all of those wonderful JCM memories. So thank you for being with me today. Yes, I'm so happy to be here and I'm so happy you're doing this as well. And so I wanted to start off with just going into just wanting you to introduce yourself and talking about where you're from and kind of your family. And we'll kind of go into a little bit more about that, but just about your children and what you're doing now, ministry and kind of where you where you started as, as well as like where you taught the Bible colleges that you taught at. So let us know, tell us about, and also about what you're doing at the church, what your ministry and what your role is as far as counseling. So um, currently I am in Louisiana, uh, which is where I'm originally from as well. I'm back home right now. And um, I am working at uh, the Burbridge Pentecostal Church in Louisiana under Pastor Haygood, uh, Jonathan and Julie Haygood. And um, so I, I also am working locally um, at a, a, a private counseling firm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a... I, it's actually working for a, a psychologist who also has a counseling firm. So I do that locally as well. Um, so I do a, a lot of things around here. But um, in the past, yes, I um, I was a Bible college student myself at JCM. And then after I graduated, I uh, worked in a local church for a while. I worked with music. I had um, spent some time on the mission field. Mm-hmm. And actually, while I was an aimer, um, that is where I first met uh, the person who would later become my husband, Kyle Larson. Mm-hmm. Um, he also went uh, to JCM at one point in time after he finished up a couple of degrees at Louisiana Tech. And then we ended up back at JCM um, on the staff there. He was the Dean of Christian Education and I worked in the music department and taught there. Um, so that's where we met you. Mm-hmm. Um, after ACM closed. We actually went and, and then also worked at TBC. Um, so we kind of almost almost the same positions there at TBC for a while. And then eventually, yes, I made my way back home. So that's what I'm doing now. It was um, during my years at TBC while we were working there and um, uh, I was working in the music department and also the Christian education department teaching there as well that I went ahead and went back to school and got my master's degree in professional counseling. So. And so you um, work for the church. Do you do counseling at the church or is it just at the firm that you work at that you do counseling there? Yes, so I offer pastoral counseling at the church and then um, also the, the, the more of the licensed professional counseling at the firm, yes. Mm-hmm. 
and you have three children and two of them I have met. I've never met your youngest. Yes. <laughs> or maybe I did. I'm trying to remember if I met her because of the times or not. Uh, I don't think she ever went with me because of the times. The boys have, but I don't think she has. Right. But I have seen you. Yeah. That's the most recent time I think I've seen you. Yeah. And I, that was back in, that was my one and only time because of the times, 2019. But I, when I went to JCM, um, when I first got there, I arrived in January of 2004 and you had, uh, Caleb, he was four. I don't think he had started kindergarten yet. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when I went back, when I remember that you were pregnant when I got there, and then mm -hmm. when I went back in the fall, you had, no, what is Nathaniel, Nathaniel, because I'm like, okay, Nathaniel, and you're younger yeah. than I am. Yeah, okay. he was born in May, so when you came back in the fall, I would have had him, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, we have a baby. Okay, yes, I do remember, and you and Brother Kai lived across the hall from me, uh -huh. and um, those were such great memories, because you guys, you were the dorm supervisor for the ladies, and he was, uh, you guys lived there in the apartment, so I was just really blessed to have both of you in my life. And Brother Kai was, you did music and I was there at first to do a music major. And then I think I switched my major over. Um, yeah. But Brother Kai was such a huge influence in my life as I know that he was in so many of the students um, at JCM and I, you know, didn't go on to TBC, ended up coming home, but you guys went on and, and, um, and did that for a while. So I wanted to kind of switch into gears and talk about Brother Kai and um, what that looked like for you guys when you were back in Texas, transitioned into Texas. So um, what were some of the major things that, um, you know, people who are experiencing grief go through? So I just kind of wanted to talk about a little bit briefly about how um, Brother Kai had passed away in, in Texas. So um, you wanted to share that with us, just kind of how that happened. Yes, and so after we had been at TBC for a couple of years, um, that uh, the summer of 2007 is when he passed away. And the short story is basically that he had been cutting down some trees in our backyard and one of them had a dead spot and there was a complication. And so it did um, hit him in the head and it did kill him instantly in our backyard. Yeah. And you guys were both in your early 30s, is that right? Right, yes. Mm -hmm. 34, 31? He had just turned 34, I believe. And uh, I was still 33, I believe. Okay. Yeah. okay. And I still remember that phone call. Of course, it was a very short time when all of us, you know, everybody kind of knew all of the students, all of the staff, and what a what a shock that was to you. Um, but just about everybody that he had uh, influenced as far as the students and people overseas because um, Brother Kai was not from the United States. He was from Denmark. Right, right. yes, yes. And, and that's, that's, that's where I met him. Like I said, I was an aimer and we actually met in Sweden at uh, the camp meeting there, the, the Nordic camp meeting, so. Mm -hmm. I love that when um, I've heard the story about how you guys met and uh, just thinking about how crazy it was that he ended up being an, an exchange student and um, <laughs> ended up coming to JCM and you guys dating and ended up getting married. And what an incredible story that was. And uh, I also wanted to mention too, that you talked about how you have your master's degree in counseling, 
Um, but I've heard you mention Brother Kai had two master's degrees. I'm sorry, not two master's degrees. He had two undergraduate degrees, one from JCM and the other one was from with Louisiana Tech. So technically he had four. <laughs> um, he double majored both places. So at Louisiana Tech, he double majored, majored in um, early childhood education and family life studies. And so that was part of what qualified him to be Dean of Christian Education as well. But then he went on to JCM and um, double majored in missions and theology. Okay. And I um, just think about um, all of the stories that he told about being in Denmark and then in his transition into um, in the United States and, and being the exchange student, how God really just changed his life. But I wanted to go into talking about how um, when this event happened um, in Texas, when you guys, like, that summer, when you guys were um, teaching, um, what are some of the major things, like from your perspective, now that you've gone through school through counseling and you have gone through this grieving process and it has, so what are some of the major things that people who are experienced that kind of grief, um, what do they go through? What are some of the things that you felt initially? Um, and so we're talking about how we care for people, but from your experience, what are those things um, that you can describe to us? Um, I would like to say, I guess up front, just to qualify that there can be so many levels of grief. I mean, a person, for example, um, you know, their dog can pass away. I've, I've had a dog that I had for 17 years pass away and it's horrifying, but of course it's nothing like losing my husband. You know, um, a house may burn down and you lose possessions. Um, so uh, there can even be a grief over what you don't have. For example, like, you know, maybe you had grew up with a, a, a dad who had um, a sickness or an illness and wasn't present. Maybe it had a stroke. And so you can grieve over what you never had, you know, so there's levels of grief. So I just want to qualify, first of all, that what I'm going to describe is, of course, regarding my grief over the loss of my husband and that somebody else may be experiencing grief and experience it a little different than me because it's a different type of grief. Or, of course, you know, maybe just a different type of relationship or something. So just up front, I want to say that. But um, I would say that losing a spouse, especially, um, I can't imagine what it's like to lose a child. I'm, I'm sure it's got to be somewhat similar. But it's just horrific. Um, there are not horrible enough words to describe um, the grief and the pain and the loss. Um, it is very disorienting and confusing. Mm -hmm. Um, it is a complete upheaval. Um, you not only of course lose a person, but there's so, uh, the ripple effects are just huge. Cause if you take, for example, there's a, those immediate things, like for example, when you lose a spouse, you're going to lose, for example, some friendships because, mm -hmm you know, um, couples hang out together. And so, you know, what couples now want to hang out with a single lady, right? Um, we were in ministry. So, it's, you know, if, if, if you are, for example, like a pastor's wife or something and you lose a husband, you lose a position as well at the, at mm -hmm. the same time. Um, there's all, of course, the monetary things. There's watching your children lose their father. Um, 
just so many things shift and change. You might not be able to afford your home anymore because of the loss of income. Um, and then of course, like still today, um, my children won't see, uh, they won't have, like my daughter won't have her dad walk her down the aisle. Mm -hmm. It's not present for their graduations. So the ripple effects are what we call secondary losses. Mm -hmm. um, just continue and continue and continue. So um, it, there's just so much to it that it's really hard to put words to it. But um, it's it's a lot of distortion, a lot of confusion. Um, people get what's what they might think is like brain fog. They might um, like uh, slur their speech or even forget words anymore um, because it is so disorienting and and um, uh, you know just so many things that are happening. If if you look up the stages of grief, and I won't go into too much detail because that's something that's easily found online. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, there's like often a, some denial and some shock that goes along with that, which can affect you physically. Um, a lot of times uh, it affects your physical health as well. Um, it affects your immune system um, and the way that you can cope with things in general. Um, I wrote down a few things. I'm trying to, to see if there's maybe something um, that's important that I just am forgetting, but yes, like you may feel out of control, very strong emotions, some despair or hopelessness. Um, C.S. Lewis has a quote that I really liked and I'm, I don't remember exactly how he worded it, but basically he said, I never realized how much grief felt like fear. Hmm. So that, that's very similar as well. And I, and that is something that I found to be true as well. Uh, there's a, it, there's, it feels very similar to fear in a lot of ways. Um, it's going to affect things like your sleep, your eating habits. Um, you, you may feel numb. You, there's just so much. It's very um, disorienting in a lot of ways. So one of the things that I, let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, one of the things that I found right here is to kind of help me sort of um, make sense of it all, I'll show you. It's called, if you're watching online, if not, you can Google it if you're listening. And it says grief is a tangled ball of emotions. Mm. And the best way I can describe it if you're listening is that it looks like, like if you thought of like a, a lady sitting with a ball of yarn that's gotten all messed up and a cat's trying to play in a ball of yarn and it's just this tangled ball of yarn. It looks sort of like that, but if every little individual string of yarn had a different emotion written on it, that's what this would look like. And it's like all of these things, just like the swirl of all these things happening at once, which is why I, I think the word words like disorienting, confusing, mm -hmm. feels so real to describe grief because you may be feeling all of these things at once sometimes, mm -hmm. what it feels like. And so it's, for me, having never been through something like that before, I would definitely say it was a first. I had never experienced anything close to that. And so part of the process is even just trying to take all this and just sort of like separate it out and make sense of it all, like one little piece at a time, like you're literally untangling that ball of emotional yarn, so to speak, you know, um, Another person did it this way, if, if you are watching online, um, or it's a map 
that's just, if you ever saw some of those, I think it was Dennis the Menace maybe, or maybe it was Calvin and Hobbes, I'm not sure, where it would show like his day and everywhere he had been. And it was like just all over the place. (laughs) And so if you can imagine like that all over the place, kind of a map and every little place you visit, like um, feeling lost, feeling anxious, feeling angry, feeling terrified, feeling lonely. Then of course the memories coming exhausted. Mm-hmm. That's a very real thing. Torn over mixed emotions, um, hopeless, rejected, depressed. And I think one very important thing to say while I'm thinking about it right now, because that reminded me of something is that you can feel very torn And nothing about this is logical. Hmm. So, for example, um, obviously, my husband, we we just kind of, I gave the short version that he died by what would be called an accident. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I might would, for example, on uh, the evening before, I know that the the trash is coming the next morning. Um, see the trash and realize I have to take out the trash and that, that my husband used to try to take out the trash. And then all of a sudden just have a burst of like anger um, and be mad at him for not being there to take out the trash anymore. And then maybe have a burst of like, he left on purpose because he didn't want to have to take out the trash. (laughs) You know, like just so the, anything that's the opposite of logical. but there is no logic to grief. Um, so if you think that you're going through profound grief and you're going to just try to logically figure it out, mm-hmm. you're wrong because it has absolutely nothing to do with logic. And um, I mean, even, even research will show you like the, the things that are happening in the brain, they're, they're not in the logic portion of the brain that this is happening. So emotion is not, cannot be fixed with logic. No emotional problem, even besides grief. No emotional issue can ever be fixed with logic alone. And so this, of course, is true of that. So um, there's probably a lot more I could say about that. I don't want to get stuck in this place if you have more questions about that, because it is just so profound and so overarching to every area of your life that I genuinely could talk for a while about that but it is kind of depressing but but it's very real also mm-hmm. I don't want a person who's going through grief and feeling like I'm just a mess to think oh well look she has it all nice and neat in a little package no that there's no nice and neat package it is a complete mess and it absolutely takes time um which is another hard thing about grief because it is you get to that point, like, for example, you might, uh, some people can't even cry, but let's say you're a person who's crying a lot and you're like, I'm so tired. Then you like, I don't even want to cry another tear. Like I'm done with this. I want this to be over. This is horrible. And I don't like it. It's not enjoyable. And I just want it to be gone, which is something that can lead to people getting stuck because they just begin to shut the process down because it is so horrible and they're like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And so they begin to maybe go into avoidant things or, you know, those type of tendencies. Um, or they shut down in some way um, or distract themselves to the point of like, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. So they get stuck in that place. Um, another thing that sometimes kind of gets people is that when they finally do 
begin to have a couple of good days and then a bad day comes back, they feel like they've gone backwards. Hmm. That's absolutely not true at all either. So <clears throat> if I had a whiteboard, I would draw for you like a little spiral. Mm -hmm. You can imagine, um, uh, you know, cause I know some people are just listening, but if you can imagine somebody drawing this little tiny spiral, just a little small spiral, and it feels like you're going in circles and circles and circles and circles and you're spiraling. Like in the beginning, that's what it feels like. It feels very small. Like you keep the spiral is very small. Mm -hmm. um, and then over time, like if you can imagine the spiral getting a little bigger and a little bigger and it, and if at one point in the spiral, if you marked one point, like sort of at the top, and, and that would be like when you hit the worst of the grief and it's really feeling, you know, like you hit the worst of it. Then as, of course, in the mid, in the beginning, the spiral, you're just in it, you're in it. But then as the spiral gets bigger, you don't hit it as often, hmm. but you're still going to hit it sometimes. So if you're down here and you're not at the point where you're sort of hitting it, so to speak, mm -hmm. and you're like, man, I'm doing good. I'm getting better. Things are good. And then your spiral comes back around. And you hit it again and you think I've gone backwards I've, or I've done something wrong or what's wrong with me or it's, not, it's just a part of the process. So mm -hmm. the fact that you have good days and then you hit it again doesn't mean you've gone backwards. Mm -hmm. You are still moving forward. You're of course going to hit it. You're just going to have times where you don't hit it as often anymore. And that just means you're progressing. And so it almost can feel worse than when you have a bad day because it was so nice to have some good days <laughs> and to think, oh, wow, is it maybe, you know, I'm finally feeling normal again. Yeah. Or something. Mm -hmm. So it makes a bad day feel almost worse for a minute. Mm. Um, but, but it isn't, it really isn't. You are still getting there. And, and so just, you have to, you have to go through the process and going through that process includes feeling the pain, mm. but it is a process. And if you trust the process, so to speak, um, and which is why I would say that if you are someone going through that, like for example, to look up the stages of grief mm -hmm. and to try to understand that might help. But if you can just trust that it is a process and even though you may have days where it doesn't feel like you're getting anywhere, you really are. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just let that kind of happen and give it time. Mm -hmm. so a lot of people have opinions about what that time process looks like. Mm -hmm. Nobody can say for any individual person what that is. Nobody mm -hmm. can do that. It's different for everybody. It's gonna look different for everybody. So. I wanted to say something and just kind of, you went and said uh, the C.S. Lewis quote. And I think that, um, what a kind of an eye-opener or for me when you were saying this is like how grief feels like fear and mm -hmm. I kind of didn't put that together but when you were talking I thought isn't that the truth that you're thinking like there are so many um things that can just wreck you of like well what am I going to do if this doesn't happen and this if this person is around your stability in your life has completely been wrecked because there's been somebody that's been there or there's been, and all of a sudden, you know, fear is coming in because you have to figure it out. 
And what if you don't figure it out? You know, you know, you will, you know, especially if you're a Christian and you walk with God and you believe in God and you, we know that you, most of our listeners, they, they know that God is their strength. But just the fact that you're thinking like, there is a real fear because I don't know if I can do this on my own because somebody else has always been there to walk beside me. And uh, kind of that connection of grief feels like fear. And uh, knowing that that is that fear is a completely natural part of that process that maybe people don't think about, you know, think grief, fear, those kind of things maybe don't exactly go together, but they do. And that, you know, what you mentioned, it fits perfectly together. Uh, they feel very similar um, because of the situation that you have been put in. Right. So true. So I wanted to go on to my other question and I wanted to mention because you are a counselor and you do do this. So you've kind of talked about the stages of grief and what that looks like. And I love that you mentioned that there is no time frame um, for people because everybody it's different. People think, well, you should be over it by now. Um, you know, I've heard people say that it, you should be over it by now. It's been a year. It's been two years. It's been five years. Like why, why are you still, you know, having a hard time. And I'm like, it, it's, it's different for everybody. So I'm so thankful that you said that because I think that giving people permission and, uh, you know, being able to speak into the life and say, you know what, it's, it's all right, that it's a process and there is no time frame for you or for anybody. Um, but as a counselor, what are some of the things that you help clients work through when they're grieving? And when do people know when it's time to go to counseling? Because grief is just, if it happens, it's automatically a thing. You know, you know you're gonna have some time and who knows how that time, but there are some people, like you said, that get stuck and people that really just can't get out. So as a counselor, when is that time to say, you know what? Uh, I can't do this by myself. I need somebody to intervene. And what would you kind of say? What were the kind of things that she would help them work through as a counselor with grief? So one of the things that some people maybe don't understand that I would definitely help them work through is that, um, and depending on which kind of grief, once again, let me just qualify it with that. But if we're talking about like, for example, the loss of a spouse and, and, and some of the things that may go with that or, or something very similar to that, you lose your identity. Mm -hmm. um, in so many ways, like the Bible talks about the two become one. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I really had gotten that concept until it was sort of ripped away from me. Mm -hmm. I don't think you realize because you still, you know, you're still you, <laughs> you know, I think sometimes we maybe even in a way doubt like how to how one do these two become, <laughs> you know, because I'm still me and he's still him. And we don't see eye to eye and on some things and like, you know, but then when that covering is lifted, when that's just totally gone, um, like if you could imagine gluing two pieces of paper together really well, and then they're glued together for a while, you know, for quite a while. So it's not like the glue is fresh and you could still kind of pull them apart slowly and it's good. But if you, after they've been glued together for a while, try to tear them apart, I mean, there's just, there. neither of the pieces of paper are in any way going to even look like a piece of paper. They're gonna be shreds at that point. Mm -hmm. um, it's just about impossible to do. So in a way, part of the grieving process, unfortunately, um, especially when in the loss of a spouse, is that you really just have to let 
the old be dead and gone mm-hmm. and you, you it's sort of almost like a kind of a resurrection process like you just have to develop a new you and a new identity um and that is i think something very profound that most people in in this situ- in this type of loss don't realize you know it's more than just i lost like a something or a someone like i i in a way literally lost myself i mean literally is it sounds like oh she's probably using that word out of context unless you've been there <laughs> if you've been there you can understand um i think there's probably other things like that that are similar um i know I don't know how much you've gone into your story, you know, here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that you, for example, have a disability due mm-hmm. to something lost. And like, for example, if someone has a, a, a medical issue where they lose a part of themselves, mm-hmm. they, they would go through that same sort of like, it's like you have to almost recreate who you are mm-hmm. um, because a part of you has died. And it would be very similar to that. Um, so that is a very profound thing that we often see in counseling, that people kind of have to deal with that aspect of it. Another place that people get stuck is um, in their beliefs about something. Hmm. So, like, let's say, for example, um, I have to grieve and I have to feel this pain because it represents how much I loved them. And if I let go of that grief and that pain and just be happy again and move on, then it will feel like that, like I cut the last thread. Or that I didn't really love them or somehow. Yeah, that I could get over them so quickly and easily or, yeah. So we subconsciously hold these beliefs. Sometimes we can consciously say them. Sometimes we can't. Sometimes they're just in the back of our minds and we can't even put it into words, but it's there. But we hold beliefs like this, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, and that's a very common one. And so sometimes we have to realize what the blocks are mm-hmm. that are stopping us from moving forward in the grieving process and to truly understand um, there, there is a guy who really explains this well in one of his podcasts, I want to say maybe it's the Huberman podcast. I'm not sure, but anyway, um, but he kind of explains how we put people in time and space. Internally, we have a time and a space, so to speak, for people. So what we, in in the grieving process, what we're doing is we're really not like kicking that person out. (laughs) We're putting them in a new time and space. So I don't see you often. I I love you to death, but I don't see you often. So if I don't see you again for another year or two, like there's no offense. I know you're not going to take offense by this, but I am not probably sitting at home grieving that I didn't see you for a year or two. So it's, it's being able, that's one of the things we can do in counseling is being able to accept that we put that person in a new time and space sort of continuum, (laughs) Um, you know, cool little word there that we can add um and that we're it's it's not uh, the loss of that doesn't feel um as much of a void and and gone like we you know 
it's 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 just a revamping that acceptance piece is really sort of hard to explain because it looks different for every person so mm -hmm. but that the word acceptance it may not be the best fitting word there but it's the word that's kind of clinically used mm -hmm. so that's the word i'm using for that point where it feels like okay we've kind of come to a settled point so to speak um it doesn't feel quite so drastic and overwhelming um, not that we never hit the point of like that I hurt or something like that. Um, but, but there is just sort of a, a difference. It, it, there's a settling type of feeling when you get to that point, it just, and, and, and like I said, it can be different for everybody. And, um, some people come to counseling just for the concept of like, where am I, where am I at and why, and why am I not meeting what other people think? Um, mm -hmm. you know, I would say that for myself, if this helps at all, um, I went through a few months of shock. Mm -hmm. um, and the first year to two was pretty bad. And then at the five-year mark is when it felt like things really began to shift. And it was kind of like, I can find myself again and really just find my place in the world again. And I've read that in multiple books and articles that a mm -hmm. five-year mark is a really typical place of sort of feeling like something sort of shifted. And so I'm thinking too that you're talking about, um, you know, when you're dealing with people in grief and counseling, and I always think of counseling um, as you mentioned, when people are getting stuck or trying to understand where is it that in my mind, maybe the irrational thoughts are mm -hmm. and figuring out like kind of like a check-in of this is what's thought is going in my head and kind of like we just talked about, I should be beyond this and being able for, uh, you know, a counselor to sit there and be like, no, you know what, that's not, that's not necessarily true. You know, that may be just an internal a thing that's kind of going through your head, but it's kind of correcting or reframing or re kind of rerouting maybe some of those roadblocks and you're just like, I'm stuck. And when you're so stuck that you can have somebody kind of guide you and get through maybe some of the humps and so that you're able to continue on the process, as you said, it is a continuous process. And I like that you mentioned it was like, you know, the five-year mark is kind of when that sort of settles. But in that those first couple of years, especially, um, you know, I've heard of some people that have been married, you know, for, I don't, I don't know, 40 something years, but even then, you know, it, they feel like they have lost that part of them. And, and you were married, how long, you know, you and brother Kai had three children and did ministry together. And so was it, how many years were you guys married at that time? Um, we were married nine years at that time. nine years and you guys had three kids. And so even that, like you talking about that um, now, and so everybody is different, whether it's been, they were newlyweds or everybody had to make their own sort of identity because it's different for everybody. Um, but I also think about um, how you mentioned just the identity of um, who you used to be and who you are now. And I also think um, to myself, those positions, and I know I, I kind of didn't mention this before, but it's coming in my mind. I'm thinking you're a minister's wife and you were a ministry team. 
And so that looked different for you ministry-wise because there are ministers' wives who I'm no longer the pastor's wife. I'm no longer working. Yeah, I'm working in ministry, but it's not the same. It's, right. it's you got to do something a little bit different. So what, what did that look like for you? And I know I'm kind of going a little bit backwards here, but just because I know that there are so many people that are in this kind of place right now, what did that look like for you transitioning into a different role of ministry of leadership? Yeah, I mean, and of course you've got all of that shifting at once. So it's sort of hard to kind of delineate that one piece. But um, I mean, I would say about myself, I've always been a pretty strong person and I was involved in ministry. Before. I was in full-time ministry when we met. I mean, you, I was an aimer on the mission field all by myself as a single person mm -hmm. when we even met. So that helped me. Um, whereas maybe a person who had not been in ministry and then maybe married into ministry, mm -hmm. it might look a little different. It might, I don't know how, you know, that would look a little different than me. I'm sure it would look somewhat different. You know, they might struggle more with like, well, what about me? You know, where does that mm -hmm. leave me? Um, I mean, I did still struggle with some of where did that leave me, but because of my background in ministry, I, it's not like I totally felt like I lost ministry at all, you know? Mm -hmm. um, of course, I also was not a pastor's wife. I was working at TBC at the time. So I still right. had my job. Mm -hmm. um, I also work in music ministry. And people still would call me up and use me in that area a lot. Right. So in some ways, maybe a person who walks with a husband that is in a type of ministry where they do almost lose, they actually lose a position, mm -hmm. it's going to look different. So my shift was more of just internal. Mm -hmm. um, well, okay, here was maybe an example that fits what you're talking about. We did children's ministry together. Mm-hmm. And like, I was the serious one. He was the crazy mm -hmm. funny one. Right. So like, I'm kind of like teaching the lesson and then he asks a silly question and I explain and, you know, and that's how the kids learn or he comes in with, you know, some crazy outfit on and like, <laughs> you know, like we're teaching about baptism and he comes on like maybe with like, you know, a, a what do you call that thing? A snorkel mm -hmm. and like pool floaties. And he's like, I'm ready to be baptized. And <laughs> you know, and we're playing off of each other. And then now like someone invites me to do children's ministry and it's just me. Mm -hmm. you know? How do I, what do I do? How do I shift that? And then of course it hits all the emotional buttons of now I'm doing it alone. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, you, I guess if, if, if I were giving them maybe pointers, I would say you have to find within yourself and know within yourself what's what you have to offer and what you bring to the table still. Mm -hmm. And of obviously that you're you're probably, I'm sure, very loved in ministry. Mm -hmm. There are people who surround you. You have to let them surround you and sort of, you know, be that for you. And and of course, you know, the comfort of the Lord and where he's leading you and guiding you. Uh, very early on, also, the Lord spoke to me some things about ministry and gave me some future promises of ways in which I would move forward in ministry um, after the loss of my husband. And mm -hmm. so that was something to hold on to. And I'm sure the Lord will do that for many other people who are listening, you know, mm -hmm. um, that he will give them some hope and some 
some direction if they will just lean into him and ask and listen, you know. Um, so, and, and also you, you kind of step back. So let me step back for a minute. Mm -hmm. The question you asked me before, and then you kind of talked a little bit afterwards and it reminded me of a few things. Um, so regarding like counseling, like, yes, normalizing is a good word for kind of what you were describing counseling or even not just individual counseling, but even like some grief groups, mm -hmm. some of these, you know, support groups really help to normalize like, oh, so it's not just me. I'm not going crazy. This, these irrational things that I'm feeling or thinking, they're actually not quite that irrational after all, <laughs> you know, other people think and feel these same things. And I'm, I'm right where I need to be as horrible as this feels and as weird as this feels, I'm actually right where I need to be in the process. Um, and so that normalization can really help people. So some people kind of go to counseling or go to a support group for that. The other thing counseling can be good for when you're grieving, even if you're not necessarily stuck, is that because it's so profound and some other people aren't going through it and they can quickly get tired maybe of you. They are, they don't know what to do with you. <laughs> um, it, you can sort of overwhelm people easily sometimes even though they love you very much because they're worried about you and they've never been through it. And so they don't know that this is normal or mm -hmm. they're not sure if it's normal. And, um, and they've kind of got their own lives too. And you see them moving forward and you're like, you're, you're feeling, you know, like, I don't, I don't know if I'm being a burden or, you know, I feel like, you know, maybe I'm sort of too much at this moment for, for everyone. And so counseling can kind of help find sort of that neutral third party that like mm -hmm. I can totally dump on this person and not feel like they're just seeing me as like the Debbie Downer who's depressed all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and then that leaves space to kind of free me up so that when I'm with my friends or loved ones, I don't feel like I'm just always negatively dumping on them or something. Mm -hmm. So that's another really good thing about counseling when you're going through the intense part of grief is that it's sort of like that third party that you'd have, you don't have to feel any guilt about like just go there and like dumping all the negative or all the confusing or all the, and you're not burdening them. You're not worrying them. Um, so that's a really good thing about counseling too. Mm -hmm. And I am, was just thinking too, it really just depends on who you are. And I, I wanted to mention that you talked about, and I'm, I'm kind of going backwards too, is thinking about you were a very independent person when you first came into your marriage. And so everybody is kind of, and we know that it's gonna look different, but it also kind of depends on who you are, your personality. Right. And, you know, I'm kind of thinking through this of like, I am not married yet, but I think about what that would look like if I were to get married and um, when that happens, uh, what what that would look like if I were to get married and then lose that person. I'm such a very independent person. It would look different for me because I've spent so much time doing education and doing ministry and doing these kinds of things that it wouldn't quite be, it would obviously be a huge loss, but there would also be things that I've already been doing. Like you mentioned, right. you've already been doing music. You've already, so sometimes it kind of just depends on where you are in your life and how, um, you know, what your passions or what your kind of ministry look like. Um, and even those people who um, 
are married, but they kind of, they not necessarily, they do things their own thing, but they kind of have their own interests. Like brother Kai was, you know, did Christian education, but you were the music person and you did that. And he didn't do music, but you did. Um, and so there are things that you did together, like children's ministry, uh, and you guys, you know, had a passion for missions, but then you also kind of had your own separate things. And so that kind of looked really, really different, um, for you guys. But I, I also kind of wanted to go into my next kind of thing. And since you mentioned about being the Debbie Downer and how counseling, and I, I was so, so thankful. I'm like, I pay my counselor lots of money so that she can hear all of my, you know, whatever it is that's going on in my brain that people will be like, what? You know, can't even figure out when you talk about that barn, that yarn ball of like pulling all of these things out, um, trying to help me make sense of, you know, whatever it is that I may be going through at the time. But when you are not in a counseling session with somebody and, uh, you know, you're not talking to somebody that does this professionally. There are sometimes when some people will say things um, that they mean and, and people always, you know, to me, they mean well. And um, I love that phrase. And I say it often because people always say, but they mean well. And in my situation, right. in my disability, uh, people mean well, but people say some really not so great things. And sometimes you just kind of like, did they just say that? Uh, and I'm sure you've had those moments of, I can't believe they said that, but it did. I have no response. I have no words, speechless. Uh, so, <laughs> I can't even believe this happened. This is real life. Um, but what are some of the things to avoid saying or some of the things that you were just like, that was not helpful um, or this was helpful, maybe you shouldn't say this to somebody who's grieving because you're going to pour more salt on it. Not meaning, probably mean it with your heart, you know, love them and well-meaning, but it was not the best uh, choice of words <laughs> or maybe even the right timing. Mm -hmm. um, definitely don't say anything that directly or indirectly sort of like blames God <laughs> mm -hmm. or something sort of like... There's so many of these types of phrases, mm -hmm. um, but I'll say a few, and I think you'll get the gist of it. But like, um, God just needed him more than you did. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the angels needed someone up there, or I, I don't, I don't know. I can't even think <laughs> of them all right now. But there's a lot of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but like, um, you know. <sighs> Even some of sort of like that he's in a better place, <laughs> unless the, like, let's say, for example, a person went through a six month, just a horrendous, painful battle with cancer. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's say it's a wife that lost her husband and she watched him and cared for him. And it was a horrendous six month battle with cancer and he was suffering daily. And she, and she out of her mouth says, at least I'm thankful he's not suffering anymore. Mm -hmm. If you hear her say that, then that to, to a small degree gives you a little bit of permission to maybe say that at some point later. Mm -hmm. Like I'm so thankful with you that he's not struggling anymore. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, we can hold on to that. If that has not come out of the person's mouth, then even that, because you have no idea where they're at, mm -hmm. um, you know, 
well, at least they're, you know, not this or no, no <laughs> not, none, none of, um, <clears throat> Brene Brown has this little thing that little cartoon, it's short. Everybody in the world should watch it. I think it's about, I think if you YouTube, um, look up sympathy versus empathy, I think, um, have you seen it? Mm -mm, I have not. So I'm definitely going to look that up because that sounds like up my alley. <laughs> yeah. But she talks about like the silver linings and like, like somebody's going through something and you just want them to see the silver lining. Mm. Well, first of all, beneath that, most of the time it's because you can't, you can't learn to just lean into the fact that they're hurting and you just want them to be okay. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a you issue. First of all, um, you have to just learn to be okay with strong emotion and that this person is hurting. And the best thing you can do is your presence. Mm -hmm. You don't even need words. It's your presence. That's the most important thing. And if you feel like a, like you got to like, Oh, what do I say? What do I say? What do I say? Then it is if, and you can't just be present for them, then it's probably best that you just take oh, yourself out of the picture for a while mm -hmm. and let them know you're thinking about them praying. Is there anything you can do? But if you're feeling pressured to say something, so you're just saying things to say them because you're feeling uncomfortable, then don't say anything. <laughs> just go on out. <laughs> um, because if you're just saying things to say them or try to make them, or you feel comfortable, you're probably going to say the wrong things. And if you can find the inner emotional space to just sit with them in this big discomfort, which also brings up your own discomfort, mm -hmm. and you can't just be okay with that, then, th then that they don't need you right now. Mm -hmm. But if you can find the emotional space within yourself to just sort of make that space that this is uncomfortable and that's okay, because what they most just need to know is that I'm not alone in this. That's all. That's what they need the most. Mm -hmm. They don't need some fancy words. No, no words are going to change it or make it better. If you can find that, then you are the right person for the job for them. Mm -hmm. um, the most important thing of all I could say is don't be judgmental. Mm -hmm. Like the, like the, like we talked about the time piece. Like if, if you're judgmental about like the time um, piece or where they should be, then then that's not okay. Like if you just need to be judgment-free for them um, and give them that time and space um, to go through the hard things. Um, shoulds, expectations, all those fall under kind of like judgment for me. You know, you should do this or I expect you to do that or, you know, and we may not verbalize that, but we, we insinuate that a lot of times, you know. Um, uh, cliches, we don't need cliches. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we mostly need presence and we also need, um, presence for the long run. Mm -hmm. People quickly forget the first couple of weeks, of course, you got the most people there and then it dwindles down over months. And then especially, uh, you know, after a few months, it dwindles down. We need a few people who don't have to have any big fancy words to say, but maybe just I'm sorry, it's almost the anniversary of my husband's death. Mm. Yeah. So I'm already, you know. <laughs> Not, mm -mm. Yeah, so if you don't understand the concept of the body keeps the score, that's another thing. If you like deep dives into, into <laughs> clinical type things, that's a good book to read. The body keeps the score. But um, 
anyway, uh, just somebody who still says, I remember what today is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or somebody who sends you a Valentine's Day card um, and, and says, you know, you're still loved or just, I mean, like I said, the words are not important. It's that people still remember them mm-hmm. or they still remember me or, or in my case also like remember my kids. Mm-hmm. They still remember, they realize like the whole world hasn't just moved on and forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an important thing. And that's for the long haul too. Like those few people who like, that's something you can really do for somebody. Write those. If you're a person who's close to somebody who lost somebody, write all those anniversaries in and just let them just acknowledge it doesn't have to be anything big or fancy um and and get to know their personality would they rather you like for example take them out to dinner and remember and talk about it or would they rather you just subtly say i remember but not make a big deal out of it because everybody's Mm -hmm. um but another thing is help so I, it is a pet peeve of mine and it was before my husband died. So maybe I'm different. Once again, it may be a personality thing, but I, it is my pet peeve. I, I can't, uh, I don't enjoy when people want to help. So they think to themselves, what would help me? And then they do for me, what would help them? Cause mm-hmm. I'm not them. So don't assume that, oh, if I go do this for her, it would probably be a big help for her. Mm. Uh, because sometimes you make things worse yeah okay Mm -hmm. um ask them what would be helpful to them and don't leave a blanket statement of hey if you need anything let me know because they're so overwhelmed they're probably not going to let you know and also they've probably never been in a position like this before where they had to ask for help quite this at this level Mm -hmm. that's a hard thing to learn um for most people so they're probably not going to ask for much help it, or else by the time they ask for help, they're so bad off. They really needed the help before they got to the point of asking. What you do is you just make time and you do something like this. I'm taking Thursday off work or I'm taking a half a day off work Thursday afternoon. And just so you know, like, um, and I would like to, if possible, just show up at your house if you're off too and feeling okay and just help you with whatever you need on Thursday. Mm -hmm. Or this Saturday, I'm going to be completely free. What can I do? Can I take the kids? Can I bring you a meal? Can I, what can I do? But so you sort of like take a time slot and don't like if like you may not, I may not be free Thursday afternoon, Mm -hmm. but you time that I might be free or need help and you say I'm going to be free too what can I do um and and that's a better way to offer your help than to just generically say oh if you need anything let me know because that's very likely not going to happen um so or or just inserting yourself in a way that maybe would make things worse you know Mm -hmm. um something else had just come to me let me see if I can think about it and then I lost it real quick um let me see if I have it written down anywhere. I did make a few notes. Oh, this is just kind of falling back to the whole um, 
somebody who remembers anniversaries and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Jewish culture, they do, um, they sort of have a, a way of, of working with grief. And I wrote it down because um, I didn't want to re- forget it. But <clears throat> so first of all, when somebody dies, they have a seven day period of sitting. And I think it's S-H-I-V-A. I'm going to guess it's Shiva or mm-hmm. Shiva. I'm not exactly sure. And where they just all sit together, they, family and friends gather and they have this seven day, you know, grieving period um, where they're all close and make time for each other. And then they have a whole year where they have a daily remembrance of the person. Um, and then at the end of that, they have a one year anniversary um, ceremony and where they all gather together. And then they have, after that, every single year, they have an a- annual lighting of a candle. And I think the word is Yazarit or something similar to that, mm-hmm. where they memorialize the person. Um, but that is, to me, really shows the space and the time and the love that it takes, the respecting of the fact that grieving is a process that, to some degree, never really ends that's why they kind of call it acceptance but like I said like for example we talked about like those secondary losses like mm-hmm. when, when my kids get married there will be a, a, a some grief that's happening at that moment right so in a way it also never ends the intensity does come to should unless you're stuck <laughs> uh, then please ask for help but should come to a point where it sort of calms down it comes becomes more manageable and acceptable um, but in general, also there's parts that never, ever end when you lose somebody. Um, but that, that support and that respect that the Jewish community shows for the family and the loved ones. And, and, you know, that is just a really good example. You don't have to do it just that way, but make mm-hmm. time and space for that grieving process in a non-judgmental way, in a way that you just kind of can be present and acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's a, the best way I can answer that. Mm-hmm. Well, those are really great practical things that you mentioned, letters on an anniversary cards on an anniversary or Valentine's Day and just letting them know, you know, you're still loved or what can I do? Um, or not even like you've mentioned, not even what can you do? Just, can I bring dinner to you on Thursday? And what would you like? Do you want Italian? Do you want Chinese food? What's good for you? You know, I want to do that. And I think that's a great thing that you said too. And I can apply that to my life too. Think people think that they're being helpful and um, you know, they want to be helpful, but sometimes they're making things worse and you almost don't want to tell them. I mean, you um, don't want to offend them and be like, you may think, you know, you never want to be ugly, but at the same time, you still have to unravel the kind of the, the mess. And it just makes it a little bit more difficult for you, you know, having to kind of think like, no, that wasn't kind of how, cause this, it, you know, the pieces didn't work together for me. And it, it was uh, more difficult, um, made the situation more difficult, but those are really good tips. And um, I'm, I'm glad that you said all of that. And I think uh, writing down those anniversaries and writing down those things of this person may need space because that's their personality type, or they may just need like, you know what, maybe you and I, let's do coffee. How, how is that? Maybe just 
presence, ministry of presence. So that, that's right. yes. basically that's the way to put it. Yes. Just be there. Just be there. Um, so I know that we have talked quite a bit about this subject and I think we can just continue. And I'm thinking so many things, but I'm like, Lorraine, don't go there because you it's just it's just one of those things. <laughs> right. But I wanted to say uh, in closing, what are the things uh, maybe that we hadn't mentioned in the interview or that you just want to reiterate that things that you want people to know about grief, the grief of particularly a spouse um, or maybe something that you have learned or just something, anything in general that you want to mention in closing? I think the best thing I can say is and this is so actually not only just about grief, but just in Eric in anything going through anybody, to be honest, is I have really learned both through this grief process and just from studying counseling and, and all the things that I've studied um, that we are hardwired to connect with God first, obviously, and with people. Um, and the in pain, we sometimes isolate or withdraw. And sometimes, yes, we do need that because we're overwhelmed and we just need to isolate or withdraw for a minute. But don't isolate or withdraw as a whole because connection brings healing. So the healing process is, is hard and you have to touch the pain in order to be able to heal from it. But because we are so hardwired to connect, that connection brings healing in a way that trying to do something alone could never, ever, ever do. So <clears throat> comfort, if you think about it, uh, you know, we, we talk about like, for example, um, the Holy Spirit, right? Um, the, the Holy Ghost. And, but what did, what did the Lord say when he was about to go, when he was going to be gone? He said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will be your comforter. He, he literally called himself the comforter. And that's what I think of, whether it's grief or anything that somebody is going through, anything, you know, whatever it is. Um, he never promised, like, for example, he would calm every storm or fix every situation. Some mountains he moves, some mountains we have to climb. Some storms he calms, some we have to ride out. Um, but the one thing that he consistently across the board promised for every situation is I will never leave you comfortless. I will never leave you alone. I will be closer to you, you know, closer than a brother or sister. You will not be alone. You will have a comforter. And if we look in the Beatitudes, it says, blessed are they who mourn or grieve, basically, because what? They will be comforted. Mm -hmm. And that is where the healing is. So the comfort of leaning into the Lord, that is a healing and the comfort of allowing others to be there for you and being able to lean into the love and the connection that other people have to offer is comfort as well. And that is where the deepest, most profound healing can be found is when we find that comfort from, from the Lord and from others. That connection is given to us as a healing property. And so that's probably the most important thing I could say. Thank you so much, Sister Gill. It has been such an honor to have you 
on the Exchange podcast and just to be able to pick your brain and ask you all of these questions and you working as a counselor and having it been through, um, you know, these uh, things with grief and with your children and your family. Um, I appreciate you mentioning all the practical tips and I know that everything that you have said is going to be helpful and is going to minister to all of the people that are listening and then who are also going through this or know somebody. I feel like if, you, if you're not going through yourself, you probably know somebody. Um, so you know what to say, what not to say. So I am thankful to all of our listeners. And um, I want to tell all of our listeners that I pray that God would send his comforter um, to give peace in times of need and in times of grief. So God bless you all. Thank you again, Sister Gill. Thank you, Lorraine. I appreciate it.